Do you do you have any regrets? Yes. It was why? Because she campaigned on one thing, and then since she came in, she did exactly the opposite. Uh, and what she did was, as the opposite, was a catastrophe. <laughs> Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, what went wrong? Liz Truss will become the United Kingdom's shortest serving prime minister after resigning on Thursday. Her tenure was defined by a rollercoaster ride of economic announcements, negative market reactions, and political hijinks. And some are now claiming that this proves the intrinsic failure of free market economics. But was there in fact more going on here? To discuss this topic, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Angela Lugo, who is the Executive Director and Principal of Europe Economics, a regular commentator, as well as an IEA Economics Fellow. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Nice to be here. So I think I just want to start getting an idea of in terms of what your involvement was with uh, the, the trust government, uh, you you often listed as someone who was potentially an, an advisor or, or playing some kind of a role in, in the, the decision-making or the, the development of government policies. Well, I had, um, I was one of the press campaigners for her during the campaign. Uh, I wrote articles about that in The Telegraph and The Spectator and an IEA podcast uh, on the merits of her um, relative to Rishi Sunak. Um, and um, I was one of a, a number of economists who was sympathetic to the objective of um, providing uh, uh, increasing the long-term growth rate of the economy uh, and also of not uh, enormously increasing taxes just as we went into recession. So I'm sympathetic to the economic aspect of that. And um, in that context, uh, obviously, I discussed these matters with other economists and anybody who uh, thought it was relevant to ask. Do you think it was a mistake to support trust? Do you, do you have any regrets? Yes. It was Why? A because she campaigned on one thing, and then since she came in, she did exactly the opposite. Uh, and what she did was, as the opposite, was a catastrophe. <laughs> this the, uh, that's the blunt truth. Um, the, she, the, the reason for backing her, the key reason for backing her was that um, she was pitching herself as the pro-market option, and she was saying she wasn't going to do any kind of energy package. And this was in a context in which we'd had for a number of years, anytime anything went wrong, it was um, you, you, the government just chose to spend vast amounts of money through the uh, Boris Johnson period, um, um, right up to Rishi Sunak's um, energy package earlier this year in response to the rising energy prices. Uh, and she was saying that she was going to depart from that, not do an energy package, which would um, uh, force a more of a market-based response to these events. And that seemed to be exactly the right kind of a thing and seemed to go with a philosophy that she'd espoused for a decade and more in, in, in Parliament. Uh, and um, uh, was consistent, obviously, with uh, her long-term growth agenda. So the things that she said she wanted to do were exactly the right things. The thing was that as soon as she came into office, the very first thing she announced was that she was going to introduce the mother and father of all energy packages. Um, yeah, let's, not let's, only let's... was she going to do that, but then she was going to do all the other things as well, which <laughs> made it worse. Yeah, let's get on to that. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that trust very much uh, you could say borrowed or, or signed on to a lot of free market rhetoric, um, the general idea that economic growth is too low, um, that taxes are too high, and that, that red, red tape is undermining business 
uh, and that there is a potential there for a bigger economy. Um, Trust then came to power uh, at the, the start of September and within days, as you're saying, was announcing a, a 200 billion energy package, uh, something that was criticised quite heavily by a lot of free marketeers, including my colleague Andy Mayer, who called it a middle-class welfare on steroids at the time. Why, why do you think they went about that particular announcement and why wasn't necessarily the right response? I think that they, I think a couple of things, I think they felt that it was a political imperative. Um, uh, I think that once that maybe when they'd gone down the path of thinking that, that, that it was going to be, um, they were going to say no energy uh, handout, maybe they'd thought that the peak energy prices were going to be, you know, two and a half or three and a half thousand. And when, when it seemed like they might be six and a half thousand and it might go further, they gave up and they decided that they couldn't sanction any of that. Uh, and so introduced the energy package. They, another thing about that was that they just wanted to park they felt like the energy package question would park the issue and let them get on with all the stuff they were interested in. They just wanted to politically make it go away so because they didn't want to be distracted from the rest of their agenda. Um, uh, and I think that they frankly didn't understand the fiscal implications. I think that they thought that because it was a, um, because it was a political imperative as they saw it, it somehow wasn't going to count in the fiscal numbers that some that things which had seemed impossible as things to do um markets had forgiven over the past couple of years so for example if if you'd gone to 2018 and Rishi Sunak had announced anything on the scale of his um uh, package of 2020 and the amounts of money you could well have had financial market panic at that point but because it seemed like everybody was doing it and it was a and it was a kind of fiscal imperative at least that was how um the, the the politicians perceived the situation somehow markets forgave them because it was okay to to get to do whatever it was 350 billion uh, of um, extended expenditure and borrowing as a consequence of covid and they thought that that their energy package was going to count in somehow the same way the markets just wouldn't mind because it was necessary so you'd get away with it and it wouldn't be seen as some kind of long-term um thing um and I, I think they just didn't get it. They they didn't understand what the situation was. And they didn't, there was an aspect of it that, and they were right in this much, that if they had introduced the energy package and then not done any of their um, tax changes or parked all of their growth boosting measures, long-term growth boosting measures for after the recession uh, and so on, they'd have never got anywhere because they were well behind in the polls they were going to lose probably at the next general election unless they had a vindication strategy where they really went for it on the on the um, long-term growth measures uh, and were seen to be vindicated by events. And that was what they were gambling on. Um, so I understand the that they felt that they couldn't do things in that way. It was just they kind of half believed and half believing was worse than not believing at all. You either had to just do the energy package and do the kind of thing that that Rishi Sunak or whatever he would have done a much better energy package than the one that they proposed. I mean, amongst energy packages, those was it wasn't the absolute worst. You could have just nationalised the sector or something, or imposed a, price, a brutal price cap. It wasn't the very worst thing you could do, but it was. I mean, it was not that good. It was pretty bad, mm. um, uh, and um, uh, so it would have been better if they had 
if they were going to do an energy package, they should have come up with a properly conceived one and not tried to do all the other things at the same time. Um, but I can understand that they felt that that was just that wasn't really an option for them because it meant giving up on the next general election and they weren't willing to do that. Yeah. So then you you had this massive energy package, which, as you've said, was inconsistent with what Truss had talked about. She said no handouts and they did the mother of all handouts and, and uh, they apparently um, by some reports ignored the other work that was being done within government to do a more targeted set of measures. We then, of course, um, almost immediately after had the Queen's death, uh, the suspension of all politics. And then about uh, when that was over, we had Richie Sunak stand up and drew the growth plan. Now, I think that growth plan in many respects seemed to have a, a kind of a, a free market tinge to it. it. It talked a lot about supply side reforms, about uh, regulatory issues, about reducing taxes on work um, and businesses. But as uh, many of the critics have now often pointed out, well, the markets didn't much like the free market plan. What was wrong with that that growth plan? Why was it received so badly? Um, let's let's look, let's think about, I suppose, first economically, but then perhaps politically as well. I, I don't think there was anything that problematic about the growth plan, except that what it, the situation was that there was about sixty billion of room for fiscal relaxation, something like something of that order. They announced that, and and the point of what Truss was trying to do of all, of all her most of her short term tax cuts were really about an do it as an alternative to an energy package, how you would help the economy through in the short term. That was the point. Not raising corporation tax to twenty five percent just into the face of a recession. Um, trying to do some bring forward the income tax uh, uh, cuts so that they're uh, coming in just as you go into the uh, recession, cancelling the planning NI rises, the, uh, even stamp duty measures and so on. They, these are the kinds of things that you do to try to counter a recession. But you can't do all of those things as well as then having a massive energy package that that um, that covers the same territory. What they were doing was to try to do the things which were instead of the energy package as well. And the consequence of that was always going to be that they were going to have to have a massive fiscal consolidation. If they were going to spend, because the energy package wasn't going to last only a short time. I mean, they had a two-year commitment. That meant that the energy package was going to expire in late 2024, just as the general election was going to come. Well, I mean, there was no chance of that at all. They, they weren't going to go into the general election and say, uh, well, three weeks ago, we announced that your um, energy bills are going up by 4,000 quid, vote for us. And so that, that clearly wasn't going to happen. They were clearly going to extend it and it was going to become open ended um, and an absolutely enormous fiscal commitment. Uh, and so if they were going to do that, OK, I mean, it's a terrible policy, but from a fiscal point of view, you could get away with that if you found enough other tax rises and spending cuts and so on to balance the books. And they were planning to do that in late November on their plan. They had this first sort of indicative phase, and then they were going to set out the details in late November. But if you were going to do it that way, what they wanted to do was to raise the long-term growth rate of the economy. And they wanted to cover some of their budgetary hole by saying, well, the budgetary hole isn't nearly as bad as it looks because we're going to get in a load of extra tax revenue anyway as the economy grows faster. So um, the whole situation is not nearly as bad as you think. In order to make that credible, though, they had to spell out a detail of how they were going to raise the long-term growth rate. So they needed, in between the mini-budget and the actual fiscal consolidation announcements, a period in which they spelled out what their growth-improving measures were. A lot of people say, well, they should have just announced 
all the stuff at the same time you know what all these um, tax measures and tax rises and spending cuts are we going to be but that wasn't an option because what they'd have had to do then was to have said we just we're going to raise the growth rate to two percent magic that magic number two percent or whatever it would be two and a half two point five percent even I believe well, 2.5 was their target but they could have said i suspect what they would have done was to have said we'll make the fiscal plans contingent on achieving two percent uh, right rather than 2.5 so it's going to go up um it's going to go up to some number we're not telling you how we get it up but you've just got to believe us i mean that wouldn't have worked the financial markets no financial markets wouldn't have accepted you just saying we're just going to make the growth rate rise and we're not going to tell you how. Uh, and because we've made the growth rate rise, that makes all the numbers work. So we don't need to raise taxes very much as spending cuts. So they didn't have any option at all, but to have a gap in which they spelled out. They were supposed to have these um, 10 major sectoral areas where they spelled out what all the long term growth plan was going to be. And it was going to be like that was the main element, supposed to be the main thing about the whole trust government. So they didn't have any choice about the timing i think it's quite wrong to claim and but the consequence of that inevitable gap was that it was inevitable that there was going to be market market turbulence they'd set yeah. things up so they borrowed far too much so there had to be a fiscal consolidation they weren't going to tell anyone how it was going to work and so um, and and of course to make things worse you then immediately have a load of opinion polls saying even when trusses come in she's going to lose the next general election well any fiscal consolidation that we're going to announce in november is was going to be um well it wasn't going to start in 2023 during the general election wasn't going to start in 2024 and sorry during the recession wasn't going to start in 2023 during the recession wasn't going to start in 2024 during the run-up to the general election so it wasn't even going to start till 2025 so now you're asking financial markets well you've got to put up with 200 billion of extra gap in your numbers maybe uh, and it could be more on a long-term basis uh, we don't know what energy prices are going to do um we're not going to tell you how is any of this is going to be paid for until November. When we get to November, we're going to tell you a plan that we're not going to get to implement any of because we're going to lose the next general election. So nobody's even going to tell you any credible plan that could be implemented as to how any of this is going to be paid for until 2025. Well, it's not, I mean, it's hardly any surprise that financial markets didn't particularly like that. Uh, the only so way it seems, it seems like there's a bit of a dual problem here with sequencing, though. And you say, well, they had to do it this way. It seems like a problem with sequencing to say, you know, we're going to do all these tax cuts. We're not going to say anything on spending for a little a couple months, probably, was the initial plan. And we're also not going to have an OBR forecast. Uh, but no, no, everything will be fine because we'll get growth. But we won't quite tell you how to, we're going to do the growth. So it seems like they, they could have, um, alternatively, what they could have done is just said, oh, we're just going to do the tax cuts we already announced. Um, there's, there's an OBR forecast here and there's a few bits of spending cuts. Alternatively, they could have... Um, effectively done the supply side reforms first and and exercise their political capital. Now, I, I'm doubtful that they could have done, you know, substantial reforms on planning because I don't think they had the political capacity, the nous, the focus to do so. So in another sense, the, the whole project was um, flawed in timing, but also flawed in its, its ability to execute because they didn't necessarily um, have the the kind of political consensus necessary. There, there wasn't a sense on the Tory backbenches what we need to do now, uh, these set of regulatory reforms. This only was at number 10 and within some senior ministers. But if you if you can't bring a parliamentary party along with you, then you're obviously not going to get the growth. You can't afford the tax um, 
uh, cuts. And also you can't really do any spending restraint either because no one really wants to cut spending. So you, you're, you're stuck where they ended up, which was between a rock and a hard place. It was it was an impossible mission to, to try to achieve. Would they then have been, based on this logic, been wise just to be very incremental about it, just try and do what little bits and pieces they could do rather than trying to do this big radical plan that ended up backfiring? I mean, I... They, they weren't, they didn't want to just go down quietly. If you were going to go down quietly, you'd have picked Rishi Sunak. He'd have, you know, he'd have lost you the next general election, but you'd have all kind of, the, 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 the people at the Times and the FT and a few people at the Guardian would have approved of you. Right? I mean, that's the, that was the choice as to whether you just kind of lost the next general election quietly or whether you tried to do to actually make a difference. The Conservatives have been in government for 12 years. They'd got somewhere early on in a kind of negative um, sense of um, addressing the deficit in the early part. Um, so they made some progress on that. But that, that, as that is a kind of negative agenda, you're avoiding the economy falling off a, a worse cliff even than it did um, that they had so they got somewhere with that they um they got uh bullied into promising a referendum uh, which they which the government then campaigned against including uh, of course Liz trust herself uh, and then lost so they ended up with brexit we then have total chaos we then have boris johnson gets in with a big majority and does nothing and so it somehow got to be 12 years and you've done nothing and <laughs> nothing positive and they wanted to at least feel like if you were going to go out you were going to go out having tried doing something you know at least I tried was there I think there was some definitely a part of that sentiment that they felt like if they were going to lose then at least they should have left their some kind of mark in the sands of history of the government rather than this conservative government having gone all this time and really done very little at all that they'd that the government itself had wanted to do um so so yeah, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, they should have said, well, you know, sometimes life, you know, if life deals you lemons, then make lemonade. It's if, if all you can do is do a few tiny things, then do a few tiny things. And if all you can do is avoid total chaos, then avoid total chaos. And with the benefit of hindsight, that seems like that was right. The Tory MPs, as you say, turned out to have no appetite at all for any of their agenda. I, I suspect they wouldn't have got through anything. The, 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 the obvious indication of that was them backtracking immediately on the 45p the idea that it was somehow the market turbulence was all caused by the 45p rate which was what everybody was saying at the start was absolutely ludicrous you've got i mean it's, you've got hundreds of billions of energy package you've got massive losses on qe um, adding into the adding into the fiscal mix um you've got the uh, you've got these tens of billions of um other uh, tax uh, non-tax rises and tax cuts and then everybody's fixating on maybe one and a half billion and it might be nothing of of them um, change to the 45 period i mean it's absolutely ludicrous and then the then the then the conservative uh, backbenchers aren't willing even to implement the most minor of little tax simplifications of getting rid of this rate which ne should never have been there in the first place if you're going to have a top rate you'd have a top rate that's only five percent higher than the higher rate you know you'd have a 50% or a 60% rate or something. You're not going to have a 45p under 40p. It's ridiculous. But they, but the Conservative MPs didn't back her at all on that. And that was indicative of what happened subsequently, is when she gave way on that, she's then given way on everything else as, it, as it's gone along. 
absolutely everything, not only all the other tax measures, but basically all, everything else on all of the um, uh, uh, on all of the long term reforms as well. Um, uh, it, the, the Conservative Party just appears not to have any appetite to to change anything. Um, maybe yeah, I mean, not, they weren't elected for that in 2019. I don't know. I don't know. I, although I'm still kind of persuaded of an argument that will go on the lines of um, they they didn't uh, they they were kind of hand fisted in their approach and the 45p being a case study here, which is that if you although you know we we might say get rid of the 45p it doesn't really raise any revenue. In fact, it, it might be positive uh, revenue to get rid of it because it could increase economic activity. Um, it's a, it's a bit useless, um, etc. At the same time, though, if you want to do market reforms, you need to think. A little bit more politically about it and you need to be a little bit smarter about it and that you if, if that's what was the the trigger um not for the heavy criticism of the government for what is you know i would i would personally say not a particularly high priority um i don't think getting with the 45p thing is in my top 100 policy suggestions for the government maybe it's in yours i'm not sure but i suspect not so then wouldn't it have been if you want to do um, free market reforms, you need to be politically careful. You know, I, I compare it in my mind to Margaret Thatcher, where, of course, she's now perceived as some massive radical, but of course, she spent a number of years in opposition, worked up her agenda, just relatively incremental. She knew she had a lot of opposition within her cabinet and within uh, the, the parliamentary party. She obviously, the difference here is trust didn't have the time to do all that. But at the, if, if you don't act incrementally, you're going to achieve very little to nothing, as trust has now found out. You're right in that, but my... And if I were to be more kind of sympathetic to them on the point, um, it seems to me that the um, 45p measure, I know I had no idea that they were going to do that in advance. Nobody mentioned anything to do with that. Um, so it was obviously a big surprise. Um, I think it was, um, as I say, I mean, it's a measure that I uh, am in favour of. Uh, I, I wouldn't have been in my top, I don't know whether it would even been in my top 100 uh, measures to change. I would, I'm quite surprised they would do it. I thought, and I still think, that the the thing about it was that it was a way of, it was potentially a cleverer political measure than people grasp. Because if the Tory MPs had passed that, it would have been very much more difficult for them to not pass things which were more to the benefit of um, people lower down the income scale. That it was a way of kind of binding the Tory MPs in to the backbenchers in to voting for the rest of the long term growth agenda. Be because once you'd once you'd agreed to cut the 45p rate, you can't you can't then say, well, I'm not going to introduce this measure, which is to the benefit of the poor people, having introduced a measure which is to the benefit of uh, the people on hundred over 150,000 quid. So it's it was almost like a, a kind of trap, which the Conservative MPs didn't fall into, uh, because they may, maybe they saw it, uh, the, the trap aspect of these things. And that, I'm possibly I'm being too generous. And, and quite possibly they didn't think that far, but it, it might have worked. It obviously didn't. It was obviously a catastrophe. I think indeed that is is the danger. I mean, I, I'm kind of just where to next. So I, you, we're seeing a lot of comments suggesting, you know, this is the end of free market economics. You know, trust tried it and failed. I think for reasons you've stated, um, much of what trust did was not free market economics. And, and she, you know, wasn't 
there long enough to have actually achieved very much. But I think the public perception of that is obviously a little bit different, or maybe not public perception, but the political class perception. Um, what what should we, I suppose, be focusing on um, in terms of good policies uh, and good ideas? Uh, is it about getting kind of back to a little bit of a, a longer effort to, to change the form of public opinion? Obviously, you can't just put someone in number 10 who has free market ideas. Not only will they be unpure, but they won't be able to achieve them if everyone else is against them. Uh, what is an alternative approach? So I think you've got, the, I, I would suggest two things at this point. One is, I think that um, it seems to me that what, what's going to happen next is we're going to have a an attempted fiscal consolidation based on raising taxes and doing almost no spending cuts. And the central lesson of the fiscal consolidation literature is that um, tax rises based fiscal consolidations fail. Uh, they just make recession bigger and then you don't cover the deficit at all. So my guess is that what's going to happen next is the Tories are going to attempt that. That's not going to work. Um, and uh, when Labour wins the, the next general election, they will then have to do a fiscal consolidation that is involves some spending reductions. So uh, and whether they will be able to implement that politically themselves or whether they'll find it, you know, who knows, in 2009, Peter Mandelson suggested voluntarily getting the IMF in. I mean, who knows what kind of things, ways the Labour Party might find to navigate the process, who else it might invite to oversee things. I mean, in, in 1997, as soon as they came in, to navigate the challenges of um, backbench pressure to keep interest rates excessively low, they made the Bank of England independent. Um, and so uh, it might be that they find some cunning mechanism to, as it were, force themselves into spending cuts. They've done that before and they might find a way to do it again. So once that kind of a thing is on the agenda, then you want to find the spending changes or the public sector reforms that facilitate those things that help the um, public sector to be more efficient and to increase your growth rate. So that's one dimension. A second thing I would say is there are quite a lot of things which would improve the long-term growth rate of the economy, which aren't necessarily um, only things that people on the right of politics would find appealing. Labour politicians are going to find faster growth appealing as well. And um, so I would be anticipating now that you're going to have Labour in power for quite a while. You want to try to think of what are the kinds of measures that will help the economy to grow faster over the longer term that are going to appeal to a Labour type mindset. And that you know, that there's no reason in in principle why quite a lot of things that um, that that uh, one would suggest shouldn't. Um, uh, I, an easy example, presumably, is some of the things on planning reform. It's by no means obvious why it's any um, more a conservative idea to um, remove to to um, increase. Um, um, house building, say, or to uh, increase the uh, um, scope for large infrastructure projects to overrule local um, or to get buy-in from local people than, than, than a Labour project. So uh, quite a lot of these things would be things which you could um, get Labour on board with. And I would say that that's the way to go. Find a way of telling a story of how this helps their agenda, you know, why, why this does the things which they want. Um, and that would be the smart thing, I would think, for a while, because it's going to be quite a bit before you're going to get to have any um, um, Tories able to uh, execute any of these things again. 
Well, indeed, Andrew, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. Back to the mission of uh, putting out good ideas and and trying to uh, persuade that the, the value of free markets and free institutions and free societies. Uh, have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye for now.